And what really emerged to me from doing it is that the whole edifice of, you know, perinatal uh, morbidity research is basically just an epiphenomenon of billing practices for like services <laughs> rendered. I'm serious. So maybe no, like it's two. So true. Welcome to the death panel. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. Our patron episode this week was something really special. It was a year in review that you will hear nowhere else. It's nearly two hours long and called COVID year two. Basically, it's a culmination of all of the work that we've done this year. We cover the last 12 months of pandemic policy response in the United States in one episode. It's quite the overview, and we've been overwhelmed with the response to this episode so far. So huge thank you to everyone who's written us about it and shared it already. It's a really important discussion and I think highlights a very steady stream of contingent failures, missed opportunities to improve public health, and abject negligence all around from the Biden administration and the CDC to the New York Times and The Atlantic. So again, if you'd like to support the show and get access to not only that episode, but all of the other Patreon exclusives, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, it's just myself and Abby Cardis. Welcome back to the panel, Abby. Thanks. And we're going to talk about morbidity and mortality in pregnant people, which is a particular area of expertise for Abby, to say the least. And during our episode on SB8, she threatened y'all with a good time, (laughs) saying that she would come back and do a deep dive into this. And of course, everyone was like, hell yeah. So that's why we're here today. And it also just happens that this is Highly topical. In early December, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris officially marked Tuesday, December 7th as the very first White House, quote, maternal health day of action, where she announced a plan for a star rating system to improve health outcomes among pregnant people. And considering the fact that it's also been in the news that the U.S. continues to have a very high perinatal death rate compared to other rich nations, I think It's clear that this is actually an ascendant issue. So it's all the more reason that someone like Abby, who really knows their stuff here, is like the perfect person to talk to, because I think that this is a real problem. And Kamala Harris implementing this star rating system to indicate safe birthing hospitals is really just the tip of the iceberg of public, private and celebrity solutions that we're going to see to what I think is a very tangible healthcare crisis that might be better solved by giving all people access to federal universal single payer health finance coverage instead of, you know, just like a vague campaign to raise awareness. So, Abby, before we get into what the morbidity and mortality crisis in pregnant people is, which is most often called, quote, maternal mortality, is there a better word for it that's more direct and sort of gives us a workaround from this like highly narrow gendered language? Um, yes and no. So I think, and I mean, I endeavor to do this 
to the extent possible, like, you know, I, I taught a class about sort of like reproductive epidemiology this semester. Um, I think in almost all instances, it is appropriate and like no meaning is lost. And it's accurate to say perinatal morbidity and mortality, um, like perinatal being like around birth, because um, mm-hmm. that's what we're really talking about. In some cases, though, I mean, I, I want to I don't know. I, I endeavor to to use the word perinatal, right, like to use the word people as much as possible. But there is like this language is just very highly gendered in like the literature of epidemiology, which is, for example, like we'll probably end up talking about this later in the episode. But my dissertation topic was this construct called SMM, which stands for Mm -hmm. severe maternal morbidity. (laughs) And we'll get into what that, you know, actually means probably later in the episode. But that is just like, unfortunately, the name of the construct that is like recognizable to scientists in the field. So there are some like little ways where like the word maternal, you know, or like language that is gendered has kind of worked its way into just like the standard language. And that is very hard to get around. But I think it's very easy to say perinatal instead of maternal to be really accurate about exactly what it is um, that we're talking about and to avoid, you know, gendering this this issue <laughs> unnecessarily. Um, yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, I feel like like, like when the R word was coming out of fashion um, to describe intellectually and developmentally disabled people within medical literature, you know, there was a lot of resistance saying, well, you know, it's a clinical term and we'll lose all this um, specificity and precision if we don't um, you know, hold on to these old terms, regardless of like how they make people feel. Right. So, you know, I, I feel like it's it's good to do like for that reason, but also because I think maternal kind of just feels like casually euphemistic. It's it's not only a bad descriptor because it's gendered, but I also think it narrows people's it narrows lay people's imagination as the nexus of the crisis is only existing at the point when someone gives birth, not also before and sometimes over a year after, which from what I understand is a huge aspect of this, you know, taking Medicaid away from people after they give birth when they obviously still need medical care, um, not just past the point of like delivery. So I I feel like this continues because of the association between birthing wards in the hospital and the word maternity or maternal. So it kind of like limits the imaginary of care, um, which becomes about bringing Mm -hmm. the pregnant person through to the moment of delivery and not about like their holistic survival to it's kind of like locked in the imaginary of like a 19th century, like someone bleeding out on the table or dying in childbirth, you know, and that that happens. But, you know, this is also stuff like long term chronic like hypertension or, you know, a stroke, you know, and I, I think in a way like working towards new terminology can also like expand the temporal scope of like really helping people understand what we're looking at. Cause it's not just like the, the moment of giving birth, is it? Totally. Yeah. And I think this is something that I kind of want to get into as well, but this is a really great point because one of, I think the major problems underpinning this, this crisis in perinatal health is how siloed, right? Like obstetric, care is i mean all healthcare is pretty siloed into these right, like right. specialist fields um but a lot of what has been happening over like the past 10 to 20 years for example is that so the the traditional 
you know, the the so-called sort of traditional drivers of perinatal morbidity and mortality are things like uh, obstetric hemorrhage, um, things like septic infection. But what's been happening over the past 10 to 20 years in the U.S. is that now sort of more chronic cardiovascular conditions are starting to eclipse those more traditional causes of this uh, morbidity and mortality. And it's a really big problem because these obstetric care teams, you know, they don't have a cardiologist, (laughs) right? Like to be able Mm -hmm. to diagnose uh, like incident heart failure in someone who's showing up. Um, to give birth, which, you know, heart failure is now is like a leading cause of perinatal death. But like this, I think you're totally right that this language of, you know, maternal, it it reflects kind of the, the siloing of this type of perinatal care in the healthcare system. And I also just think, I mean, we can get into this later, but there's a lot of like branding that's kind of going on around right. this crisis, a lot of like political action. And it's all it's very like natalist and it's kind of creepy you know like it's for moms like the march for mom you know things like that and it's like well I don't know and I think that kind of bothers me because it connects back to something else that I think is really problematic about this discourse in the U.S. which is I mean and it's kind of what you're saying but it's conditioning um dessert of you know healthcare services on right reproductive potential and i think that that is pretty pernicious so like the um like i think it's the cdc recommends that uh all reproductive age women take prenatal vitamins like just in case like take folate like just in case all the time like all the time and just to prepare just to prepare yourself for any possible you for know, an eventual conception could, right so that and you in, have the yeah oh my god <laughs> and in public health this is the, it's this whole idea of like oh preconception health is important because it's like preconception it's like well maybe health is just important in general and there's also i think this is kind of um it's weird because it's it's sort of like a progressive movement i guess in this realm of the health sciences particularly like in obstetrics and like gynecology, but it's becoming increasingly recognized that perinatal morbidities and mortalities uh, and mortality take place or can take place after delivery and right. pretty, pretty long after delivery. And as you kind of flagged in the introduction, um, the postpartum period is when a lot of people experience what's called churn in their health insurance coverage. So mm-hmm. they get you know kicked off Medicaid, have to find something else. It's a time of real sort of discontinuity and vulnerability in terms of access to health services. And now there's this kind of movement in obstetrics and gynecology, like, you know, perinatal epidemiology a little bit to talk about the postpartum period as the fourth trimester. And so it's like, oh, this is just like another trimester of pregnancy. It's that's how important it is, like blah, 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 whatever. And, you know, I do think that we desperately like as a as a country, like should be paying a lot more attention to postpartum health. Um, but I'm I'm totally not convinced that like the fourth trimester framing is is the way to get there because yeah it's just this kind of like creepy natalist like mm-hmm. you know you d- you deserve uh, you deserve health insurance coverage because 
you know, the, the period where you're nursing, you know, your, your infant is, is basically just a continuation of your pregnancy. And it's like, uh, I'm not really sure right. That right. that's the way we want to go. No, that, I mean, it's, it's the way that so many of these frameworks of like how long someone is eligible for Medicaid, for example, like so many people who might be like above the, um, income requirement when they become pregnant, they become eligible for like addition, like for this sort of additional bracket of Medicaid, which is for pregnant people with the idea of like the fact that like people need health care in the lead up to pregnancy if we want to um, reproduce society at a sustainable rate. Right. So this mm-hmm. is why like a lot of like Medicaid expansion is like targeted directly at people of reproductive age, like or with reproductive capacity rather. And so the, you know, the fact that we sort of cut it off, right. (laughs) Um, Once someone has given birth is one of the most absurd and arbitrary um, things I've ever heard. Right. The idea that someone um, as a, as a gestational vessel, right. For a baby (laughs) is entitled to a kind of healthcare that like once that baby leaves their body and they become, just the regular real world caregiver for the same baby, right? That they're not entitled to that healthcare then, right? So it's mm-hmm. only when they're like physically um, in possession of the baby 24 hours a day that they get that health. It's, you know, it's, this is the kind of crazy stuff, you know, this is the kind of like absolutely absurd stuff that you, you see. Um, and it, you know, it's, there's no wonder that there is a perinatal mortality and morbidity crisis in the United States, because one, we don't provide people with health care Two, you know, we don't provide people with paid leave when they get pregnant and have children. We don't provide people with leave. Most people mm-hmm. have to return to work. Work is grueling in the United States. You know, it's really no wonder that this is a problem. And I think you're absolutely right, Abby, that not only does the sort of liberal um, discourse of like personal responsibility really bleed in here um, to a lot of the solutions that are offered. It really is kind of tied up in a broader conversation around who deserves healthcare in this country and, and who deserves to um, survive, really. And yeah, who has and, to then like earn it or buy it on the market. And pregnancy is like pregnancy is like a redemptive state, right? Right. <laughs> like, yeah, I feel like people who are capable of getting pregnant are like not you know, highly regarded in our society are like not treated respectfully or whatever. But pregnancy is like the redemptive state where it's like, okay, you were born this kind of like fallen person. Um, Totally. You know, maybe you were like sexually licentious when you were younger or whatever, like pregnancy, like we see it, I think, as both sort of discipline and as like redemption. Um, But you know, that's, that's really scary because when you're not pregnant, like, you know, you're, you're not entitled to anything. So yeah, like if you were pregnant, uh, there are several sort of different eligibility categories for Medicaid and pregnancy is one of them. And the upshot is that Medicaid ensures like half of all deliveries in the U S but that creates kind of a problem because there is a real patchwork of provisions because Medicaid is like administered by states. Mm-hmm. Um, so some states, so there's, there's a federal minimum. So Medicaid, if you're on Medicaid uh, to deliver a baby, federally Medicaid has to cover you up to 60 days after the delivery, uh, <laughs> which is not that long. That's like eight, you know, eight weeks. That's some wild. some states like states that have expanded Medicaid, right, have 
in some cases, extended that coverage for up to a year postpartum, which I think is really good and should be kind of federally mandated, but it is not. But it's it's a real patchwork of what you can get, um, even with this. You know, I think it's a really good idea to have Medicaid be like a safety net provider. Um, but I think it is like pretty bad that we have just this total patchwork of even what you can get through Medicaid in terms of perinatal obstetric care and and care postpartum. Right. I mean, I think, you know, most literature does show like that the benefits of having Medicaid are immense and that the negative consequences of forcing someone into insurance churn are really, really bad. You know, that's pretty consistent across um, both sides of like looking at that issue separately. So it's, you know, churn is one of the the biggest ways that people become alienated from their care, that we lose that continuity of being able to really have someone looking and observing and charting the the one patient, right? You kind mm-hmm. of, when you have to switch things up like that and you have to switch care, um, particularly like probably like when you're getting used to having like a new baby at home in theory also, right? Like, That is not a good time to throw a bunch of administrative burdens at someone. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that it's not like this everywhere, um, obviously, um, but that the United States is being, you know, it's being talked about that we are in the midst of a crisis of perinatal morbidity and mortality, that our rate of um, bad health outcomes for pregnant people is getting worse, that we're sort of sliding backwards. And some people have argued that that's really just a function of the fact that we changed death certificates and death reporting to include, you know, different um, categories. And so this sort of produced data that made it look worse. But even those people acknowledge that there are obvious and legitimate issues with you know, severe social and political decisions that we've made that have tremendous negative consequences for pregnant people. So like, you know, from your perspective, really, what is this crisis that we have in our hands and like what's real and what's like spin, I guess? Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) Um, So what is what is this crisis? I think this crisis question. (laughs) Yeah, it's twofold, I think. So the first aspect is that we live in a country that makes people really sick um Mm. and it makes people sicker at younger ages than they are quote-unquote supposed to be (laughs) and that is a, a particular problem for pregnancy pregnancy is often referred to as kind of a stress test um because pregnancy is a physiologically pretty taxing state your levels of Stress hormones rise, right? Like inflammatory Mm -hmm. markers rise during pregnancy, um, all sorts of things. So if you're coming into pregnancy already having, you know, sort of a concerning maybe cardiovascular risk profile, that could end up being not good because because like, you know, we're saying pregnancy is a stress test and the U.S. is really great at, you know, producing (laughs) concerning cardiovascular risk profiles. Um, So that's that's part of it is that I think, you know, we just live in a country that makes people sick and are, you know, we don't have appropriate sort of social supports to be able to ameliorate that in a lot of cases. And then I think the other sort of component of this is that this sounds so 
This sounds like it shouldn't be as big of a deal as it is, but our data systems are really bad. Like we do a really bad job of even being able to quantify this problem. So you had alluded to, you know, like it's been kind of in the it's been kind of in the news for a long time. It's sort of uh, like an article of faith that, oh, you know, the perinatal death rate in the U.S. has been increasing for the past, you know, several years, 10, 15 years, whatever. And I think that that is well, so there's there's good news and bad news about that. The good news is that it's now becoming clear that maybe the perinatal death rate has not been increasing over this time period quite so dramatically as it has looked like. But the bad news is that it was just always really high (laughs) and we were previously like severely undercounting perinatal deaths. So perinatal death reporting, it's based on sort of the vital statistics system. So it's based on sort of general uh, death reporting. Vital statistics are collected at the state level. So each state has like a vital statistics, you know, office registry that collects information about deaths and then transmits them to the National Center for Health Statistics. Mm -hmm. And it became pretty evident, I think, in like the 80s and 90s that the National Vital Statistics System was really dramatically undercounting perinatal death. And in response to that, a new in 2003, a new U.S. standard death certificate was issued that included a checkbox indicating whether the decedent was pregnant at the time of death or had been pregnant within, you know, either 42 days or a year of of their death. I can't remember which one it is. So that was rolled out in 2003. But again, vital statistics reporting takes place at the state level. So that mm. standard death certificate was uptaken at various times by different states. So the U.S. didn't report a national uh, perinatal mortality rate for like 10 years because the data were just so discordant. Like some states had adopted the new standard. I know you mentioned this on the show before, but every time I hear you say this, it still just like shocks me, right? Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's like really wild. Um, So some states had adopted the, the, the standard, the new, you know, the 2003 death certificate. Some states had a checkbox question that was sort of incompatible with what was on uh, the standard death certificate. <laughs> Some states didn't had death, were using death certificates that didn't have a checkbox at all. So it became essentially, I think, impossible to like harmonize um, the perinatal death reporting coming out of all of these states. Mm-hmm. I think that now... I think that all the states had uptaken this new death cert- or this uh, 2003 death certificate by like 2016. And I mean, that is embarrassing, though. Yeah, that is yeah, the kind of on ramp that's embarrassing for a form for a freaking for a death certificate form. Yeah. So it has been now demonstrated that the checkbox, when the checkbox is introduced, right? the the perinatal death rate like jumps (laughs) so the checkbox is because we're we're counting for the first time yeah so the checkbox is is capturing (sighs) a lot more than sort of like the previous procedures were capturing but then there's a question of like oh like is the checkbox accurate or not and there have been some issues with the checkbox potentially over counting perinatal deaths so i uh in like Texas, I think it was a few years ago, like 2012 or something. There was like a massive, and I don't, I don't know the details of this. So 
you know, I apologize that I can't tell this story in its full, you know, richness or whatever. But um, Texas saw like a really like a 200 percent increase or something in the perinatal death rate. And I remember like there were some research articles about this before they really figured out what was going on where they were like, okay, well, this can't be real. Like in the absence of like a war or like a famine, like this kind of increase is simply just not believable. And it turns out that it was kind of like a weird artifact of how the checkbox had been implemented, right, in Texas in particular. So the the national, like the NVSS, the National Vital Statistics System, is what perinatal death reporting is based on. And the data, I mean, they they have improved. It's It's not, you know, it's it's really limited. It's it's not great. And and the uh, the National Center for Health Statistics is aware of this. I think I was reading something preparing for my my class about this uh, a few weeks ago, and I read something that was from the National Center for Health Statistics. And they were like, yeah, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services has identified that our like reporting here is really bad. And they were like, we get it. We know. But HHS didn't earmark us any money to overhaul any of this. So, you know, (laughs) what are we going to do? Like, we just have to keep doing it the way we are because, you know, we don't have the resources to do like a true overhaul of these data collection systems. So the NVSS is the main one. And then there are two other kind of sources of perinatal mortality data in the U.S. There's the Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System, uh, which is... It's based on the National Vital Statistics System. So any sort of Mm. errors or inaccuracies that are in the vital statistics will sort of propagate through the Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System. But this one, the Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System, it's called PMSS. It's a it's a little bit more detailed. So, you know, they do a little bit more detailed sort of investigation um, for each perinatal death. Um, They try to collect more data about each death. Um, you know, the, the vital statistics are are considered like just de-identified data, but the PMSS mm-hmm. data aren't because, you know, data collectors are sort of digging and trying to add on more um, more information uh, to these statistics. And then there are at the sometimes at the state and like sometimes at the sub state level, uh, what's called. And again, I'm sorry for this term. They're called maternal mortality review committees or MMRCs. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are like very granular investigations of like every perinatal death that occurs in, for example, you know, a given state, a given county, you know, some some like bigger jurisdictions like, you know, cities have their own uh, MMRCs. Um, so those are like very detailed data collection. But the 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 picture that emerges from all of this is like we can't we can't rely on MMRCs, you know, they, they sort of produce the richest and the most informative data to really, cause they're really trying to get to the bottom of like what went wrong in each specific right. case. But that is, you know, really labor intensive and these MMRCs, like they don't talk to each other. They don't talk to like, and when I say talk, like the data systems are just like not interoperable. Right. Um, so we have this like really fragmented landscape of information and it all it all paints like one quadrant of like a very concerning picture. But it's very difficult to put it all together because like we just don't have the data infrastructure that it would require to do that. Which is it's just amazing. And I really appreciate you walking 
through it in detail like that because it you know, sometimes like these are the details that that as a layperson you don't hear, right? Because it's decided that this is the stuff that's like too complicated for regular people to understand. But then, you know, what we get told is, oh, you, you know what you should use, you know, we've made you is this database where you can look up all of the hospitals near you and see which one is rated as the safest, right? Yeah, I Again, would simply go to a four star hospital. Right, right. Like, and, and like personal responsibility, temporarily limiting the risk to the moment of birth, like uh, reinforcing all the problems. But then to also hear on top of that, beyond those two limitations of this like safe birthing hospital framework that the Biden administration just announced, um, you know, as you're saying, it's like there's no way that that recommendation system, not that any of these ever actually are, right? Because we don't keep good data pictures of things. You know, we don't look at stuff that we do bad at. But how could you possibly come up with some kind of accurate rating for a hospital's theoretical birthing safeness if that real picture depends on a municipality making their own independent choice to stand up their own highly specific system? Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's absolutely absurd that the, that the like problem is being discussed as, oh, it's this tangible crisis. It's getting worse. We have to, in a very natalist way, return to the old um, version of the United States where this was, you know, not a problem, which ignores the fact that it's not that, as you're saying, it's not that it wasn't a problem before and we've gotten worse. It's that it's been really bad all along and we haven't really cared to look at it closely enough. Right. And it's just it's just really um, I think it's really indicative of the the problems with, I, I think, how we approach the messaging on this stuff. Right. And how we approach talking about it, too, because we we just sort of are down to these very like liberal frameworks of, oh, we need like pub- public private intervention and we need to raise awareness and we need to get the word out about maternal mortality. Well, like in doing that, you create the mythology that we have a complete like picture of perinatal mortality, right? Like you create the illusion of knowing um, exactly what is going on and of this government competency that it absolutely is not true, right? So yeah. ultimately it sets us up to fail because we we do not trust people to understand like what is actually going on and what are actual like threats to population health are and how best to deal with them. Yeah. So this is connecting to something that is one of my, I've been meaning to write something about this forever and I just have not gotten around to it. But one of my sort of pet issues, or I guess one of my irritants in this kind of space of epidemiology relates to how we talk about preventability Mm. of perinatal deaths and, you know, severe morbidities that, that could result in death, but maybe don't. And we talk about it I mean, we, you know, as the scientific literature or whatever that I'm now speaking on behalf of, I guess, um, the way the scientific literature talks about this drives me up a wall because it is it's couched in this extremely like individualist consumer choice framework. It's almost like it's like positivist. Right. So the way that we talk about Mm preventability is. I mean, and if you if you Google or, you know, you look up in PubMed, you know, perinatal mortality, you know, perinatal morbidity, preventability, you'll find a lot of papers that break down preventability into patient, provider and system factors. 
Yeah. As if they're um, all separate things that you would address they're in all a vacuum. Separate they things. never interact, never and, compound, no intersectionality. Yeah. So, th- I mean, okay, I have a lot to say about this. So let's see if I can Please <laughs> like organize away. my thoughts to, to get it out. But uh, so the first thing that pisses me off is like <laughs> patient factors, right? Mm-hmm. Like. I'm sorry. Like, and it's always things like, oh, like the patient was non-compliant, like didn't didn't follow instructions, like didn't get themselves to a hospital in a timely fashion. And it's like, OK, well, fuck you, like truly <laughs> fuck you. Um, and this this kind of goes together with uh, something that also appears sometimes in the scientific literature, but a lot in just sort of the the political, the popular discourse around this crisis, which is like, oh, well, you know, you just have to, if you're going to the hospital to give birth, like you just have to really advocate for yourself. And it's like, I'm sorry, that's just the wrong way to think about it. Like, you shouldn't have to be like a competent science communicator and like a dogged advocate to deserve mm-hmm. not to die. And it's, it, it makes me... It makes me angry because, you know, we talk about provider factor and like a lot of what shakes out of this preventability literature is like, oh, it is. It's a lot of provider factors. And I think, you know, it would be system factors, too. But provider factors are a little bit more kind of like proximal and like easier to measure. Mm-hmm. So it's often you know, into the narrative that this is just like an issue of bad apples and compliance <sighs> and not well, like an issue yeah. of systemic total like ineptitude. Well, and it is. I mean, I think like OBGYNs are by and large really bad and like their professional associations, like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, like ACOG, they're pumping out, you know, amazing policy positions, you know, day after day, these like policy papers about, you know, how we should extend Medicaid, postpartum, like all this like great stuff. But then you look and it's like, oh, but your members are not listening to people, right? Ignoring Mm -hmm. people when they say that something is wrong, straight up yelling at and abusing people. There was a study out of uh, UCSF a couple of years ago. It's from pre-COVID times. So I like don't remember anything about when it actually came out, but it, it showed that like 50% of birthing people or something, you know, wild like that reported being straight up abused by their provider while they were in the hospital to give birth, being yelled at, being pressured into, you know, a labor induction or a cesarean delivery, like just unbelievable. So, you know, it's there's a real disconnect between like what these professional organizations are kind of doing, Mm -hmm. uh, like at like the advocacy level and then like what their members are doing. And that is concerning. So, you know, there's that. And then in this like preventability literature, you know, the the system, the so-called system factors just kind of get mm-hmm. swept under the rug. But that I think is very bad because what we end up talking about. So in public health, like we talk about prevention in terms of like primary tertiary or primary, secondary and tertiary prevention. And like what this preventability kind of framework or this preventability literature is really talking about is like tertiary prevention. Like what could, you know, a a healthcare provider have done differently that Mm -hmm. would have prevented this? Like once someone is showing up to the hospital to give birth, something goes wrong. Like what are the things that like the provider or, you know, in this very victim blaming literature, the patient could have done differently to prevent it. So that I think is like a tertiary prevention kind of approach. But what I think is actually crucial that we move towards is a primary prevention approach, right? So why Mm -hmm. is it that 
you know, what is it about the structure of our society that is making people so sick, you know, by the time they even get to the hospital to give birth, that they're having these like, you know, these terrifying outcomes and these really, really serious complications. And I think, you know, if we start asking about that, it gets like very quickly to a place of like, oh, right, like racism. Like we have to like overhaul society, basically, like like we have to end racism and like institute socialism, or at least like that's where my mind goes. But, you know, there are these yawning gulfs like the the euphemistic language in public health is health disparities. Um, right. But black and indigenous people are like three to four times more likely to die as a result of pregnancy than white people in this country. And that does not simply reduce to, you know, socioeconomic status differences. Black people with a college degree or higher, actually, I have this uh, image right in front of me and I'm going to pull it up. So we often use like education as a proxy for what we call socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. And very highly educated black people still have, you know, much yawningly higher perinatal mortality rates than white people with like a GED or less, right? Like white people who haven't completed uh, a high school education. So Okay, I'm getting myself a little bit off track here, but like this all goes to this idea of of kind of primary prevention and right. where we make the interventions, why, you know, totally. where these fixes are targeted towards. And I think also primarily, like, are these fixes carceral or not? Because the kinds of interventions that we can offer at the level of the sort of tertiary, like the provider um, you know, or the patient level, one obscures the fact that like a lot of the patient compliance stuff is going to be determined by the health finance system that patient finds themselves in yep. and their class position and their, um, you know, their physical geographic location. If they live in a rural community, how many pharmacies are near them? How long is the wait at the pharmacy? Do they have home care? You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a, just a huge list of factors. And then beyond that, on the provider side, you know, it's never just in individual providers. It's what is the hospital doing in terms of staffing? Like how lean is the operation running? What are providers being asked to do in terms of workload? Yeah. And what, how, you much, know, how much discretion do providers have? Like, I think this right. is a big problem. And like, like California has implemented some programs that have been successful at reducing perinatal mortality in the state because they sort of standardize care, right? So Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, if someone is having a hemorrhage, right, or is showing these signs of potentially having a hemorrhage, like, this is what they get. Everyone gets the same thing. But I think in a lot of places, you know, providers have a lot of discretion and like providers are racist, right? Like, the the healthcare system is racist. And you've heard these stories, you know, like, uh, Serena Williams, right, having to like plead with her healthcare provider saying, you know, like, I know that I have pulmonary, like, I know that I have blood clots in my lungs, like you need to check me. Um, And, you know, being able to do it because she's Serena Williams, maybe. um, But, you know, the amount of like discretion that's kind of baked into like, whatever, it's it's really bad. But I did some like back of the envelope math, like I did this for my for my class, actually, this semester. Um, There is this big, there was a big report. It's called the report from nine maternal mortality review committees Mm -hmm. um, that compiled, you know, 
findings from nine MMRCs. And it, I mean, it's a fantastic document. It's like a really sort of deep dive. And one of the it things that fascinating M- to read, honestly. Yeah. One of the things that MMRCs uh, investigate specifically is, is preventability. And this report compiling all this information estimated like the proportion of perinatal deaths that would be preventable according to their decision. And they came, the number they came out with is like 60% uh, of perinatal deaths in the U S are, are, are preventable or potentially preventable. But I did some back of the envelope sort of calculations on this. So the perinatal death rate in for 2018 was, it was 17.4 per 100,000 live births. That's how we count perinatal deaths is the number of deaths per live births. The 2020 Which also, rate, like makes it seem smaller, too. Uh, it's it does not yeah. seem small if you compare it with other countries. <laughs> um, and I think I mean, that's that's kind of why you uh, the 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 rationale for doing it as a rate is so that you can compare sort of apples right. to apples with other countries that have different um populations because the absolute numbers you know in the u.s would be much bigger than in you know monaco (laughs) or something like that so it was like 17.4 per hundred thousand in 2018 and like 20.1 per hundred thousand uh in 2019 and i did some back of the envelope math to be like okay well what would the rate be if we did actually prevent all the deaths that you know, if if 60% of these deaths are pr- truly preventable and we truly prevented 60% of them, what would the rate come out to? And it would come out to like 12.8, almost 13 per 100,000, which sounds, I mean, it's better, you know, 13 is lower than 17. But if we look at the rates in other countries per 100,000, in Japan, it's mm-hmm. four. Oh, in boy. Finland, it's like 5.6. In the UK, it's seven. In Canada, it's eight. Right. So Mm -hmm. even like this paradigm of preventability, it's like, is this really the best we can do is like, is it really true that fully 40 percent of these deaths are absolutely like not preventable, like can't be averted in any way? And I think that is where kind of like the shift. I think that 60 percent number probably reflects like a tertiary prevention paradigm. Right. But I think much closer to 100 (laughs) percent. of those deaths would be preventable in kind of like a primary prevention paradigm. And we know that it sort of can be done because other countries, you know, lots of other countries have much, right. much, much lower rates. Right. No, I mean, um, it, it honestly, you know, the idea that like when you hear it in that framework of like, oh, well, like 60% of deaths can be prevented, right? Like it seems like, oh, like, great. Like we just need to do whatever those recommendations are. But, but the thing that I think is really clear is that without considering real structural overhauls to health finance and Mm -hmm. um, real changes in decision making about guaranteeing people access to free at the point of service care. Like there is absolutely nothing that we can do to even come close to tackling this problem in a way that's actually meaningful. Right. Like we're Mm -hmm. we're kind of playing ourselves by limiting our solutions to the realm of things that can happen in, in a world where private insurance still is the name of the game. Like, I I, th- I think really this is one of the best examples for something like Medicare for All, which is why it worries me to see it really taken up by people who are very anti-Medicare for All. Like, Kamala Harris's plan um, that she was running on in the general in 2020 was um, what we were calling Medicare Advantage for All, which would be <sighs> to basically stand up this network of public-private 
patchwork systems across the United States, um, just really leaving the door open for private insurance in the same way that our Medicaid system does, where, yes, Medicaid is a state program, but most states all have contracts with private insurance companies that administer it for them. So there is that like austerity principle that is like at the heart of the dynamic of Medicaid, too, which is supposed to be the care that is for the most vulnerable who need it the most, right? Profit is still in that relationship because it's mediated through like the private insurance framework. So it's like, you know, the thing that I think is really just not talked about in this space, right? It's all about raising awareness that these deaths are happening, right? Or, you know, it's it's not about like real, what are ways to like address structural uh, racism within like the medical industrial complex, which is like, we need to get rid of like student loans. We need to overhaul education. We need to mm-hmm. give people housing. We need to give people health care, regardless of whether they're pregnant or not. And long after they're pregnant, if they're pregnant. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think I mean, this sort of comes up over and over again, like public health is a very kind of technocratic discipline in general. Now, there you know, there are pockets of sort of exception to this, but by and large, so much. And like, you know, the the discourse in this space in kind of like the mainstream public health is no different. Very often, you know, it's like, oh, gosh, like these disparities, they're so bad. Like we just need to get to equity, like health equity, which, right. you know, I don't <laughs> think is a I don't think is necessarily like a bad goal. Like, yeah, it's bad that relative to white people, you know, black and indigenous people have these death rates that are so much higher, that are so scary. I think health equity is a perfectly serviceable goal, but I also would like us to think about going beyond just sort of like statistical parity in outcomes across different population groups because, you know, the 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 perinatal mortality rate for white people is like in the U.S. is still higher than it is in a lot of countries. You know, it's like 11 per 100,000, again, compared to like four per 100,000 for the country of Japan. So which, again, you know, like even private insurance is like I think the American system of private insurance and the way that the American Hospital Association and the American Medical yeah. Association have all collaborated for decades and decades, as we've covered on all the episodes we've done diving into the history of like the fights against socialized medicine in the United States, you know. There is such clear and obvious evidence of like the negative health outcomes that come from allowing private insurance companies to exist. And this is just like one of the many places where it's so obvious. And this is this is I kind of sidetracked myself, but this is exactly where I was sort of originally going. You know, public health is this very technocratic discipline. And a lot of times it seems like the objective is like, oh, okay, yeah, like this machine that we've constructed that just like spits up blood constantly. Like, what if we just tweaked it to produce, you know, equitable outcomes? Like, what if we just tweaked it to produce, you know, ice cream instead of blood? And it's like, (laughs) well, you can't do that because like the entire, you know, the entire machine is constructed to kill people. And I think there's a lot of like, wishful thinking kind of in public health that it's like, ugh, like, well, if we just bring a little bit more awareness and intentionality, like we're only a few implicit bias trainings away from being able to use this machine to produce equitable outcomes instead of inequitable ones. And I just right. really don't that. I mean, I, I think that is not uh, I think that's not the right take 
for kind of a lot of reasons. But I want to touch. So I'm I'm getting maybe ready to go into a digression that has to do with private insurance. Um, go for it. So I, I don't know. I'm <laughs> I'm trying not to dominate the conversation, but I guess no, no. People I, honestly, people want to hear from you on this. <laughs> do not do not worry. Um. So. I like maybe in terms of this whole thing about like, well, private insurance, like private insurance still exists. And that's like a really big impediment. One of my one of my dissertation papers, and I'm so sorry to like be talking about, you know, one of my dissertation papers. Oh, shut up. At all, like outside, outside the context of my defense. Um, but this is a problem. And um, one of these papers that I did kind of illustrates what this issue is. And I will I'll give you kind of like the setup, I guess. Um, and it was, you know, I was a little bit raw. I, I didn't fully anticipate what an obstacle kind of this like fragmented privatized system of health insurance, uh, was going to be even for, you know, this, this paper that I spent, you know, two years designing and, <laughs> and writing. So, which I feel like dis- is such a, that's such a telling observation though. Like, you know, even knowing all you knew going into it, like even you were still surprised by what you ended up seeing at the end of the day. Yeah, completely. So to give some sort of background for this, uh, my dissertation was about, as uh, we mentioned at the top of the show, this construct called severe maternal morbidity. I'm going to refer to it as SMM throughout. It's a construct that we really only use in like North America, like in the U.S. and Canada. The World Health Organization <laughs> uses a similar construct um, called near miss for a perinatal mortality, which is a little bit more severe, right? Like the the World Health Organization definition of a near miss is like, oh, like you you almost died and didn't either due to like a timely intervention or just to chance. SMM is a little bit more expansive of a construct and there I mean there are tons of problems with how SMM is conceptualized and measured. Uh, in the US and I could I could go down the rabbit hole on this like truly for fucking ever and I'm not going to do that. Um but SMM uh, encompasses, you know, very severe, potentially life-threatening complications during pregnancy, during delivery, and postpartum. Um, and the reason that we study it is, you know, in the U.S., we have this really high perinatal death rate, mm-hmm. but that rate comes out to somewhat mercifully a fairly small number of act of deaths in like absolute terms. So it's about like seven to 900 perinatal deaths in the U.S. uh, annually. And we don't have a national data system. So, you know, if you're trying to study this epidemiologically, you're probably looking at data from one hospital or something like that. You know, like it it can be very hard to study uh, sort of epidemiologically because you kind of need large numbers for a lot of epidemiology. So this construct of... um, SMM is sort of intended to be like a proxy, right? Like the the causes of SMM are the same, right? And it, it lies kind of along this spectrum from like a completely uncomplicated, you know, pregnancy, labor and delivery through the spectrum of progressively more severe morbidities, you know, ultimately can potentially result in death. But there are many, many more of these um, severe morbidities and, you know, they kind of are tracking the same things. So that's why we we study it. But the the measurement issues with SMM are just multitudinous. So basically, the definition that the CDC has developed for measuring SMM is claims based, right? So it is all just oh, ICD codes fuck. 
for oh, a list. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. It's just ICD codes for a list of different uh, conditions and procedures. ICD-9 or ICD-10? Uh both both they had i see it was developed in like i think you know the early 2000 like 2005 2008 um so they have you know and if you go on the cdc website you can see the icd-9 codes and the icd-10 code like i spent a lot of time like sussing this out for my dissertation it was awful um but the idea is you know we don't have a national like health data system in the u.s and so the idea was like oh well you can just look at claims you know from like the national inpatient sample or something and get like a quick and dirty tally of these things. And there are tons of issues with that. One of them is that the national inpatient sample, which is like a big claims database that's nationally representative, that only captures um, claims from the delivery hospitalization and can't link over time. So that essentially restricts like the study of SMM to just what's happening when someone, yeah, it's, it's a nightmare. So there's this claims based private insurance is a fucking nightmare it's a nightmare I can't believe it it's like it it's everything everything i learned about it it gets worse i'm i'm always still surprised and it's been years please so continue there's this there's this claims-based definition which is like far and away the most commonly you, you know if you're reading any literature about smm it's probably using some variation of this claims-based definition there is also now like the a couple of like professional associations have developed a much more in-depth kind of tool for identifying like a true SMM. Um, and they developed this tool. It's really meant to be used by like individual hospital systems so that they can like review these severe, um, you know, cases of these severe complications, similarly mm-hmm. to how you would review like a death. Um, right. So this, it's a lot more, it's a lot more detailed. It involves having access to and uh, having access to someone who can abstract information from someone's uh, health record, like their electronic medical record or something. And I mean, it's detailed, you know, it's really, really detailed and it takes a lot of time. So, you know, that that one is kind of really labor intensive, but we think a lot more accurate. The claims based one is, you know, really easy. All you got to do is like screen through claims for a list of ICD codes. Right. But it's really inaccurate. And I don't have to get into the reasons why it's super inaccurate. But I will say like my my uh, dissertation advisor and someone on my committee did like a validation study of the claims based definition against uh, sort of the more intensive medical record review definition. Mm -hmm. And the probability that someone who like screens positive according to the claims based definition the probability that they actually truly did have like something that would be counted as an smm is like 50% right so like the claims definition doesn't do well so right. it's easy to use but it's really inaccurate the other one is really hard to use but it's a lot more accurate and so me you know being like a a nerdy like enterprising young dipshit like in my graduate program <laughs> Like I was thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of a lot of sort of like machine learning applications in, uh, in public health and in epidemiology. But I was thinking like, well, this is a great chance to use like, you know, computational resources. Like what if we can build some like monstrous machine learning model to do this identification more accurately without having to without having to hire, you know, a medical record abstractor who needs like six Mm -hmm. months to go through all these records and get all this information. And so, you know, I built these machine learning algorithms. They 
did, I mean, they did better than the claims-based definition in some ways. They did worse in other ways, like, you know, overall, like really no improvement and no change. But it wasn't until I was literally, I was writing like the discussion section, the last part of this paper. And I'm like reflecting on, you know, what this all means that I'm like, oh, right. There's no way, like even the algorithms that I built, like I built them using data from one academic maternity hospital Mm -hmm. that uses like one specific type of EHR system. And I realized that there's no way that anyone else could ever use the algorithms that I built because every every hospital has like different data systems like they all use different EHR systems like my algorithm would not be usable in Medicaid it wouldn't be usable in like I I forget what uh, EHR system the hospital uses but you know if it used epic like you wouldn't be able to use it in hospital data that you know records information in red cap or whatever I don't know what all the EHR systems are so like the 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 lack of like interoperability even of like the the electronic medical records is like a huge impediment. Now, you know, I'm not a great programmer. My algorithms did not work, but I still maintain that it was like a pretty good idea for like a labor saving kind of intervention. But even if I were, you know, like a computer science genius who had built this algorithm that like actually really did super work, it would still be useless because of like the fragmentation and, you know, yeah, the, the lack of interoperability between, um, all of these, all of these EHR systems. So it's like, again, like I, I didn't realize that until I was basically done with the project. And then I was like, oh, okay, well, here I am. Like I've tried to solve like a, like a systemic problem with like a technical fix, but oh, well. No, and I think this is so important though, because it's like, these are the kinds of things that I think we're going to see proposed as technocratic solutions. I mean, what, what Kamala Harris has been talking about in this whole, like at all of these like press stops about the, um, you know, the, the agenda of the White House to combat this crisis, right? You know, she's talked about, okay, we need, like, we've got this, like, commitment from, like, the private sector, and we're going to have collaboration with the public sector, and we're going to have, like, celebrities to help raise awareness. And, you know, it's like, of course, I totally see coming out of this, the announcement, okay, we're going to put together, you know, this machine learning protocol to like give us better data. Right. And, and that's, that's really, you know, one of the things that you try to do. Right. And it shows that one of the things that you need, if you want to do that efficiently and successfully and thoroughly, then we have to also consider the other structural forces like Do we have a national health service? Can hospitals talk to each other data wise, which you would think that they can with the way that we talk about and fictionalize medicine in the United States as if, you know, everyone always uh, across the board knows what is in someone else's chart, right? This mm-hmm. kind of mythology of of competency and connectedness and and having a full data picture of of health in the United States and knowing that we can implement these, you know, targeted solutions that don't step on the toes of competition, but just tweak it just enough to make it less cruel, right? It's all a lie. It's all just a story. It's 
it's really at the end of the day, you know, we have to make a decision about what we want to value and what we don't want to value because we can create jobs by, you know, pumping money into people developing machine learning algorithms, or we can create jobs on creating like standardized data sharing between hospitals and National Health Service, you know. Yeah, uh, an obstetric and, surveillance system like right, the UK has. Right, exactly. And, and, you know, it's like we can choose to throw all of this money into that part of the economy. It doesn't have to be into the, you know, Theranoses and the fucking VC fuel um, bait companies that do, you know, whatever, like machine learning startups for healthcare or record systems. You know, it's like, it's like the commodification of it becomes, um, even though we discuss like the commodification of health as the sort of secondary benefit of like healthcare, right? That like, oh, and bonuses, you like, make a lot of money doing good work, right? But it's actually that it is the primary goal. And the secondary goal, any health benefit that is conferred to the individual is really just coincidental, right? Because the the orientation is all around profit extraction. And we have to make choices otherwise if we want other outcomes. Well, and I'm so, it's so good that you brought this up because- Something that I really so again, you know, my dissertation wasn't about sort of perinatal death directly. It was about this construct SMM. And what really emerged to me from doing it is that the whole edifice of, you know, perinatal uh, morbidity research is basically just an epiphenomenon of billing practices for like services <laughs> rendered. I'm serious. So maybe no, like two, so true. T- two illustrative uh, examples <sighs> of this uh, wow. potentially. So uh, SMM, like the CDC definition, it's just a list of conditions and procedures that the CDC says constitute, you know, a severe morbidity of this kind. One of those things is uh, obstetric hemorrhage, right? Hemorrhage is a mm-hmm. is a major cause of perinatal morbidity and mortality. The way that hemorrhage, obstetric hemorrhage, is sort of divined from claims data is through the ICD codes for blood transfusion, which hmm. sounds like it could be okay. Like it actually, it's very accurate. Uh, to sort of screen people who probably did have uh, like an SMM, a severe complication like this, to screen people who had like massive transfusions, right? If you got like four uh, units of, of blood or more, like that is a pretty good indicator that something, you know, pretty severe happened. Right. But the problem with the ICD codes for blood transfusion is that they don't contain any information about volume of blood transfused. Hmm. So anyone who gets any quantity of blood for any reason is counted then as like an SMM case, which leads to a huge number of false positives, right? Because some of these people are just, you know, maybe like a little anemic and getting like a little bit of blood, but it's, you know, not um, like a severe, severe complication or a severe hemorrhage. Um, And I remember I like presented one of my papers at a conference and I talked about this issue and it's well known, like researchers who work in this area, they often present like counts of like, SMM including transfusion and not including transfusion because they're like, mm. yeah, these transfusion codes are so inaccurate. inaccurate. Yeah. Um, and someone in this presentation, someone who I think was like European was just like, oh, but that information, like they didn't believe me that this information about volume is just not there. And they were like, oh no, just check, just check, just check in the health record. And I was like, okay. 
I love this for you. Like, I love that you're from like Finland or whatever, where like you have like real data systems, but like, I promise like it's not in there. Um, so, you know, like this just billing, another and, example why private insurance is like yeah. a barrier to scientific progress globally. And if you're in Medicaid, right, like there are potential if you're doing this work in Medicaid, as I did for part of my dissertation, you're contending with things like upcoding, right? Like where providers like bill for the most sort of expensive version of, you know, whatever the diagnosis or the procedure is to maximize their their reimbursement, right? Like there's all this inaccuracy baked in. And then the other example of this is um, similarly like eclampsia is quite a severe complication of pregnancy, involves, you know, really high blood pressure, um, swelling. It can lead to seizures. I mean, it, it can lead to death. It's, it's very mm. severe, and the way to resolve eclampsia is basically like to deliver uh, the baby immediately. Mm-hmm. Now, eclampsia can happen sort of postpartum, uh, but it's it's pretty rare that, you know, someone will continue to have eclampsia or will have like eclamptic symptoms postpartum. But I so one of uh, another one of my dissertation papers, I used this claims based definition and I was looking in Medicaid, which is a little bit unique because it allows you to look across time at the same person. Hmm. rather than just looking at the the delivery hospitalization. And when I broke out, you know, the the conditions according to timing, right? Like before delivery, during delivery or postpartum, a huge number of eclampsia cases were actually recorded on like the day or two after the delivery date, which I think hmm. is probably just like a record keeping thing, right? Like it's like that's right. like when the billing took place, but it makes it look like Well, I mean, I think it's a little bit scary because it makes it look like there's less eclampsia like during delivery than there really was. Right. Um, You know, so it's just I feel like this birthing safe hospital star rating system only honestly incentivizes like making the data accuracy less of a priority for hospitals. You know what I mean? Because if it depends on what they're going to use to determine whether a hospital gets this rating or not, and because a lot of these births that are going to give a hospital a bad rating, you know, they might not necessarily like have a lot of control over whether they get those patients or not. I'm thinking specifically like the Medicaid population or people being brought in via ambulances or just, you know, especially considering the extremely high amount of uh, cases of like severe COVID and pregnant people that mm-hmm. we've seen in the United States since August, right? Um, basically a month after the Biden administration declares like, you know, <laughs> victory over COVID on 4th of July, right? Like all of a sudden we start seeing like lots of really terrible outcomes in pregnant people. And and I, I feel like one of the things that I worry so much about this this carceral preference to how we approach public health interventions, particularly I think is driven by the sort of neoliberal like public private partnership model, right, of mm-hmm. uh, decentralizing both like responsibility and culpability for anything that goes wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Because they sort of spread out like the indemnity is spread out by that process and 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 I think it just really worries me because if we go in trying to um, if we go in with this perspective of like trying to create like a data driven way to inform consumers about safer 
God, save for hospitals to give birth in. I'm laughing just saying it because it's absurd, right? Yeah, Yelp for hospitals is not going to solve this problem. Yelp for hospitals is also going to make like hospitals behave like how restaurants behave when like things go wrong with diners where they try and like cover things up. And but you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, this whole idea that we need to preserve consumer choice and like keep these these beautiful like golden markets from ever being, um, you know, uh, put in a position where they like could not have like competition, right? <laughs> like it, it, it just completely is besides the point of what we're supposed to be doing at the end of the day. You know, if we want to tackle perinatal mortality, like we cannot have private insurance anymore in the United States. If we're serious about making this a priority, like if if Kamala Harris is serious, like she needs to like get over private insurance. This cannot be some sort of reform intervention based on like a McKinsey slide deck in a partnership with like the Williams sisters to talk about their own personal experiences with, you you know, like we have to do actually something. We can't continue to like treat these problems as if, you know, they're not also problems of housing and not also Mm -hmm. problems of just structural racism and, 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 and rampant disinvestment and decentralization of any and all public health coordination capacity. Yeah. Like if you sit, like if you give birth and, you know, let's say a week or two, three, four, whatever, some number of weeks later, like you start having trouble breathing, you know, you're just having like weird symptoms. Like what's going to determine whether or not you go back to the emergency room? Health insurance. Right. Like people need something like and I'm not. Like I do, you know, I think that like racism is baked into a lot of things. Like I'm not one of these people who thinks that like, oh, like we just need like Medicare for all. And that's going to just solve like all these other problems. But no, it's not. It's yeah, it's an and we need it all. Yes, it's an and like but Medicare for all is just a basic precondition. Like people like people can't survive on like vibes alone, you know, like Mm -mm. They're ha- like you have to give people vibes something and choice vibes and choice. YOLO. And, yeah. And like, <laughs> oh, my God. And ratings. I love I love that. Um, and stars. Yeah. People people need something material because there are real material barriers that prevent people from getting the care that they that they need right from getting appropriate care in this time. And I think that anything, any type of proposal that doesn't address, right, the um, just avalanche of unnecessary, you know, suffering and morbidity and death that is constitutively built in to our privatized, you know, for-profit system of health finance Mm -hmm. is only going to be window dressing, unfortunately, right? Like, Mm -hmm. this is a really, and I mean, this is not unique to this subject area. Like, Anything, I feel like anything you do, I feel like epidemiology should be the most radicalizing thing in the world. And it's it's a little bit puzzling to me that it's it's maybe not. But it's like, oh, it's so clear. Like, thank God it radicalized some of you. That's all I've got to say. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I was maybe radicalized before I (laughs) I made it. Thank God some of you that were radicalized made it in and out. Yeah. Found out. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But it's like and I mean, I, you know, I, I. I said this in my class and I was like a little bit nervous, but you know, my students were so smart and cool. So shout out to my, to my students for being awesome. But you know, I even said this, I was like, you know, it's really worth reflecting on like whether 
these goals of like really like reducing, you know, reducing disparities um, and just reducing rates of morbidity and mortality like across the board, you know, whether this is achievable in this paradigm of our current system of health finance. I personally, I think that it is not. Um, But, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of money. There's a lot of career advancement to be made from just sort of tinkering around the edges like you know, you can publish paper like it does not matter. Like if you're an academic, it doesn't matter what the papers you publish say as long as you publish a lot of them. You know, so there are careers to be built. There are consulting contracts to be awarded. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people stand to benefit from this not really changing. And I mean, this kind of gets to like uh, a broader concern that I have, which is the total lack of like public like you know the, the lack of maybe an ethic of, of public service uh in public health and i mean you, you know you see it all the time with covid it's like okay but who is like who is actually who is actually advocating for like the kinds of like massive investments and structural overhauls that could actually change this versus who is like saying what you know the democrats mm-hmm. or like the hosts on msnbc want to hear I'm just like raking in the speaker, you know, the speaking engagements and the op-eds and the and the papers and the media appearances like it's just it's really, really sad. And it speaks to how again, I think it speaks to how just like technocratic the field of public health is that the way that I was trained was like, oh, well, none of that none of that shit is really our concern. Like you just need to like statistically isolate the effects of various exposures on, you know, right. such and such health outcome. I think that's changing a lot. You know, like the, the students in my class, like I, I incorporated a lot of this stuff because I was like, I know that you that you all aren't like getting this from, you know, if your curriculum looks anything like the curriculum that I had, like you're not getting any of this stuff. But you know, students that are coming up really want this stuff. Like they're really engaged. Like they're really interested. Like a lot of people come into public health because, you know, they're like, well, it seems pretty clear that like, you know, if we can make a case that we can improve population health by like, you know, making these policy changes like that, that would seem like a no brainer. Um, But yeah, I feel like a lot of people's hopes just get dashed and (laughs) like that, that turns out to not be like what the field is really doing. But I'm, I'm hopeful that that's kind of changing. Well, I mean, I I really do feel like there are so many people in the space of public health who are ready for it. It's 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 also an issue of I think not just like a, an intra public health issue, but it's like something that is at the level of society, right? It's at the level of issue of like how we think about our re- relationship to public health as lay people. It's something that happens to us, right? Mm-hmm. That comes from the realm of like uh the legal and administrative state. Um, And it's something that is sort of dictated authoritatively in a paternalistic way from the top down, right? And it involves a lot of secrecy and it involves a lot of issues of trust and distrust, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we have not always had a relationship to public health that's been so hierarchical. It, It used to be a little bit different, right? There were ways of thinking about our engagement with public health as lay people as participants, Mm-hmm. in it, right? As not just consumers of health um, as individuals, but as participants in health at a community level, at a city level, at a state level, at a country level, at a global level, right? And and there are a lot of people, I think, working not just in epidemiology, but 
in emerging diseases and um, immunology and virology who, who are really looking at, I think, this holistic approach, looking at like, okay, how does climate change factor mm-hmm. into this? You know, how does climate change factor into um, perinatal mortality? You know, the, the, the sort of stress of life and the stress of capitalism takes a real toll um, globally on all of our health, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, there is so much room to incorporate that perspective, right? It just like takes, I think it takes like a real commitment towards like, okay, you know what? Like fuck the consequences. Like I'm going to speak up here. I'm going to bring like my politics into it and I'm going to stop forgetting, um, you know, the sort of, or I'm going to, I'm going to forget the lie that we're all told to believe that all these things are siloed independent of politics or culture or society and that they sort of exist in their own hermetically sealed, um, you know, little venues of expertise, right? Like not affecting the world around them with no, no impact on, on, on real temporal space, right? We have to acknowledge how, the daily production and reproduction of knowledge and of data and the ways that we interpret and, and narrativize that data, right? Like these have tremendous impacts on, on who survives and who, uh, you know, experiences really bad health outcomes or really bad morbidity or, or, or who was ignored or believed when they go into the emergency room, right? So it's, it's about like trying to find ways to reconnect things that I think, you know, as neoliberalism became dominant and, and this trend towards decentralization in terms of like state function and, and health capacity. Right. Um, I think, you know, it's time to like start consciously like working against that. Oh yeah. I mean, I I completely agree. Like a lot, a lot of what you're describing has been traditionally kind of like the realm of, what's called social epidemiology. Um, and I, it's, it's, it's a weird space right now because like social epidemiology, I think is kind of on the way to becoming perhaps like maybe one of the more sort of like retrograde or like reactionary, uh, subfields of epidemiology. Like I hesitate to call myself a social epidemiologist because I didn't train in one of the very few, like specifically social epi programs. I think I bring like a social epidemiology perspective to the work I do. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm experimenting with kind of claiming that title for myself. But when you look at, you know, a lot of what is coming out now that is is called or labeled as social epidemiology, it's like it's it's afraid to challenge or undermine like existing structures. And I think that that is a real disservice to everyone. So like a lot of the mm-hmm. things that are coming out now, like that are that are being considered social epidemiology are I'm sure you've seen these like annoying ass papers about like or this reporting about like, ooh like county level Trump support and covid death rate like do that, you know, yes. Does, does this like predict, you know, like that is like considered social epidemiology or like, you know, does some, you know, minor tweak to, you know, the like a tax credit, you know, like the earned income tax credit, like does that result in like better population <laughs> level, you know, health outcomes in whatever area? And it's like, well, I don't know. Like, are these are these the questions that like s- like social epidemiology, social medicines should be addressing themselves to or should, you know, should we be thinking more? along the lines of like uh like an Allende or like a 
Virchow. I don't know how you say his name. Rudolf Virchow. 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 I don't know either. But um, two kind of like real yeah. heads from the past in terms of like social mm-hmm. social medicine, um, who were very explicit about how you know economic and social arrangements are really what produce you know health and disease states at the at the population level, and I don't know. Like I I think that that is kind of the most interesting stuff and. I think it's really important to like, you know, we don't we don't just have to I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. Like it feels like a struggle sometimes in epidemiology to convince people that like what we have now like isn't the alpha and omega of everything that we could mm-hmm. possibly have or do, right? It's like, well, right. yeah, like we have this system of tax credits, but like also like what if <laughs> You know, like, I don't know, like, what if the tax code were overhauled? Like, what if we had, like, redistributive uh, taxation policies in this country that, like, made everybody richer? Mm -hmm. Um, Like, what would that look like in terms of population health? I feel like, um, I don't know, sometimes it can be difficult to sort of, like, get there. uh, But I think that's ultimately where we have to go because, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's like, it's it feels very clear to me that, a lot of just suffering and death and, you know, preventable morbidity is just baked in to the way that we do things and like tinkering with the way that we do things. Like I'm not necessarily opposed to it, right? Like an incremental fix that like makes some people's lives better is, is better than nothing. But I think, you know, we have to think bigger than that. Um, well, I think it's if just, we want to make real inroads. It's clear that if you're trying to do epidemiology without considering the sort of weight and extractive capacity of capitalism, you're trying to do it with like one hand tied behind your back, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's you really can't um, take our political economic framework out of um, the context that health exists in today, right? Like those two things actually cannot be fundamentally separated in a material sense, but we ask scientists to attempt to do that. Right. And I think that's a, that is a, um, that is a way of trying to force people to reproduce the status quo, but it's, it's incredibly limiting, I think. And, and I, I do think that it really gets, um, it's just, it must be so discouraging, right. If you're coming into this with a, a desire to try and actually like understand, the world and make some sort of uh, like impact on, on population health. Right. So you're like, I'm, I'm inspired by the pandemic. I'm going to go to school for epidemiology. Right. Like you're Mm. in for a pretty rude awakening. And I I guess, you know, it's like why I love that. Like when you and Justin come on the show, um, it, it does give people like another model for how to be an an epidemiologist you know what I mean and not to sound like corny and be like oh you know representation matters but it's also like hegemony is like a real bitch you know what I mean (laughs) and like it's really pervasive and it's just nice to I think like be able to have a frank conversation about epidemiology and also capitalism Mm -hmm. which is like a major social and economic force which drives all health outcomes at the end of the day and pretending that it doesn't is really just, you know, it's shooting yourself in the foot. Well, yeah, because then it's defaulting to, again, like secondary and tertiary prevention, Mm -hmm. right? Sort of behavioral kind of interventions that are carried out on like a one-off basis, like a study by study basis. I think this really is why 
you know, the timing just kind of worked out, right? That you just casually mentioned like a month ago, like, oh, we should have this conversation sometime. But um, as soon as I saw this press conference that Kamala Harris did about, um, you know, how they were going to address the urgent crisis, I just was like, we have to do this episode as soon as possible. <laughs> because, you know, it, it's like this conversation to me is sort of an important primer that should give everyone tools to analyze, you know, whatever bullshit comes as a proposed solution to the quote unquote, you know, maternal mortality um, epidemic. Right. And, and I think this is kind of like going to be a hallmark of the rest of Harris's political career. She's really kind of positioning herself as an authority on this as, as you know, an issue that she wants to take up. And uh, so I'm just going to read like her statement from this press conference real quick. One quote from it, because I think it gives you like such a clear idea of like, why these alternative narratives of public health need to exist and how urgent it is for there to be like science communication, like the conversation you and I just had, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so Harris says, quote, this challenge is urgent and it is important and it will take all of us. So let us all say unequivocally, maternal mortality and morbidity is a serious crisis and one that endangers both public health and economic growth which means everyone is impacted by it. Because just think about it, mothers mothers are the backbone of our economy and their children are the future of our economy. Yeah, mothers, mothers hold up half the sky. Am I right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think what I want people to take away from this is that the causes of this crisis are very deep and very structural and it's going to require you know saying all of us that doesn't mean anything mm -hmm. what it really is going to require i think is massive investment in better data systems and i think it's going to require like a, a total at minimum right an overhaul of our system of health finance yeah, and way more than the $3 billion in the Build Back Better Act that uh, has been promised towards this over a period of 10 years, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's really all that I have, you know, to say. I mean, there are, there are lots of proposals that are kind of working their way through. Like, I think in uh, in Pennsylvania, I think there's a bill in the legislature right now that would require Medicaid to reimburse, like, doula services. And, like, mm -hmm. I think that's great, right? Like, I'm not against these kinds of incremental reforms because I think they do save lives. Right. And like we do need them. But right. there are so many studies that show that like having doula care after um, giving birth is really helpful for getting people to actually like be convinced to go to the emergency room when they're having oh, yeah. complications, even if they're concerned about costs, just having a person to text and tell you like, no, you should go to the ER. Like the fact that like there has to be a study that shows that people should have like a support network. Yeah. Like, someone to stand up to your OB <laughs> while yeah, you're in labor. Like, like, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to these things and there is kind of a lot going on, but at like this national level, if we're not talking about these really deep structural fixes and like this really unsexy stuff about, you know, mm -hmm. how do we even how do we even get our arms around the contours of this problem? Right. Like, well, we have to do it by Absolutely. measuring the problem and like, well, how do we measure the problem? Well, like not very well, um, like at a national level, any conversation that isn't engaging with, 
you know, this this much deeper and much bigger stuff, I think, is, you know, I mean, whatever, like. I don't think Yelp for hospitals sounds like a great idea. There might be other stuff in, you know, the vice president's plan that is okay, but I don't think it's like a really serious engagement with the depth of what the problems actually are. And that's, I mean, that's the Democrats special, right? Is to be like, wow, we hear you. Like this problem Mm -hmm. is so bad. We feel your pain and we understand. And like, that's why, uh, you know, now there you can download a shitty app to like (laughs) rate your delivery experience at your hospital. Like, you know, I think it's just indicative of like the Democrats, like cowardice more broadly, I guess. Um, right. But, and, you know, the Democrats with their like refusal to do anything meaningful to protect abortion rights. It's, yes. you know, which is just going to force more people to carry pregnancies to term that they might not want to carry to term, when, including you know, potentially high risk pregnancies. Right. Exactly. Right. I mean, that can result in in morbidities and and mortality. So. Um, yeah, so I think what I want people to take away is this, this is a really big problem. I don't think the Democrats are engaging it at like a national level with the appropriate depth, but that doesn't mean that you can't, right? Like that doesn't right. mean that as just, you know, the the public, you know, we can't agitate for these things and advocate for these things. But in order to be able to do that, right, in order to be able to do like organizing like this, I feel like it's important to understand kind of like the depths and the contour, the contours of the, of the problem. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, hopefully, hopefully this episode is helpful (laughs) to that end. But if anybody ever, you know, wants to talk to me, like people can hopefully get in touch with me. Um, if anybody ever has any like thoughts or questions or ideas, um, cause I think there is some really exciting, like organizing going on around kind of like the perinatal mortality crisis. And, um, it's encouraging to see that, but it's coming from like kind of the ground up, not from not from a policy level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Abby, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through in such depth. And it's it's been really awesome, actually, to just sort of get this picture of really what, you know, people have heard you come on the show to talk about COVID, right? But they haven't heard you talk about your own research at such length ever. So I, I think it's really awesome, too, to be able to share that with folks. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate the opportunity to do it. I hope it was not like too terribly boring, but you can leave me mean reviews if it was really dry. (laughs) Oh, please. And I think we'll just uh, leave it there for today. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.